Hello and welcome to another edition of Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham, where Team Needham discusses everything healthcare. I'm your host, Sean Needham, along with my wonderful wife, Janet, and we have the pleasure of having uh, Dr. Robert Syke back on our show again. Um, he is a pharmacist down in Las Vegas, Nevada, and he does the same thing we do. He uh, compounds, uh, compounds a lot of hormones. So um, we are going to be talking today about FDA approval of and using the FDA approval drug process and using drugs off label mostly. Um, if you look in the news a lot lately, there is a lot on the FDA restricting drugs, specifically ivermectin, to be used off label um, to be prescribed for um, certain things. Now, Robert is going to be discussing how. Most drugs, many drugs are used off-label, prescribed off-label for many diseases. And if people didn't have that option, people would die. So, Robert, welcome to our show. Hey, thanks so much for having me on, uh, Sean and Janet. It's good to be on your show again. And uh, I like this topic because you remember, Sean, I spent about 12 years of my career as a pharmacist working in the drug industry. So these right. terms that we're talking about are things that uh, we can really give a lot of clarity on. Yeah. Now, tell us, you were going to write a book or in the process of writing a book about um, using drugs off-label. Is that correct? Well, it was one of the components of drugs off-label because in 2003, when I was doing my MBA program, you know, at that time, I thought, well, I, I need to get an MBA in addition to my pharmacy degree so that drug companies would be interested in hiring me to work sales, which I did. I worked sales for three years. But eventually, when they figured out I was with a biotech company, it was my second company. I said, "You have a PharmD. We don't we don't use you for sales. You manage clinical trials, and this is very relevant because you do clinical trials for a drug for what you want to put on label. We can talk about what that means. Or the strategy for this particular drug was to expand the label. And yes, why was it part of my book in two thousand three? Uh, because I had said basically. 18 of the top 20 selling drugs of all time would be off patent uh, by 2010. And this patent cliff for the drug industry would move the drug industry to more peptide-based drugs. We see that in the sub-Q injections for yeah. immune response modifiers, vaccines, but that also we're seeing a big movement, not necessarily to benefit the original manufacturer, but more and more drug utilization off-label because there's no incentive for a drug losing its patent to pursue label expansion, which would mean another expensive clinical trial to say, well, we proved to you, the FDA, that the drug is good for this, so approve it for this one thing. Well, you know what? We also figured out that it's that's good for this. We want to expand the label. Now, it's not often worth it. So um, that's basically the gist. And yes, it was an important component. Drugs going off label and being utilized as a big part of medicine. I see that trend continuing. And so can you give us a good example of a drug that is used off-label more commonly than on-label? Well, there's a bunch. I mean, we can talk in recent history about, say, say COVID, right? You have hydroxychloroquine originally approved for uh, uh, rheumatoid arthritis. You have right. ivermectin originally approved in its clinical trial you know, for the river blindness disease. But what do we find hydroxychloroquine is good for? It's good for all sorts of inflammatory diseases and published clinical data doesn't necessarily mean a full-on trial to get approval to expand that label by the FDA uh, because that's very expensive to submit that paperwork. 
So we would call that an ANDA, abbreviated new drug application, hydroxychloroquine for all sorts of viral diseases, including HIV prevention. And then on ivermectin, if you just go to PubMed and type in ivermectin and cancer, you'll see ivermectin being studied for a number of different solid tumor cancers. And in addition to that, a number of viral illnesses. So what it means, let's define terms, the label. You know, as pharmacists, we, we take the bottle off the shelf, you pull off that package insert that's multiple pages, it's folded like the best origami you've ever seen. <laughs> and, and one of the sections is indications. Okay, this drug is used for this. That's the indication. And it may be more than one. If you're a drug manufacturer, it's often not financially beneficial or feasible to go for multiple indications. You get a drug approved for rheumatoid arthritis. And once it's on the market, Medical practitioners can write it for whatever. It would just be most responsible if they say, in this example, hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin, if they write it for a disease state for which there is published data, not necessarily on label, right? Because that just means an additional cost for the original manufacturer. And once the drug has lost patent or close to that patent cliff that I wanted to write about, uh, then there's no financial incentive to expand the label. The drug is now generic. So those are some, uh, a drug can be off-label, Sean, if it's as simple as, I mean, you and I both know, the NSAIDs, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, the label, the indication was to use those for inflammation for a short period of time, four to six weeks. But you and I know that people are on these drugs, even though it's for inflammation, they're on them for years. That is right. technically outside the FDA-approved label. Right. And, and another good example would be um, the PPIs or um, H2 antagonists for gastrointestinal reflux and, and, and GERD or stomach burn or, you know, stomach acid. Um, they're indicated for like six weeks also. So if you prescribe them longer than six weeks, that is off FDA label, off FDA indication. It's not FDA approved for that, yet it happens all the time. There's so many more examples. Let's say the Absolutely. sedative hypnotics, like uh, the you know the the Zolpidem, the original drug Ambien. You use that for more than a short period of time. It's it's off label. Now, that term off label. Here's where it's most relevant. If you are a drug manufacturer, so I worked for a company that purchased a couple of uh, biotech drugs from Amgen. One was for a rare uh, audio, autoimmune disorder in, in kids, uh, and the other one uh, was approved for hepatitis C. But it was used, it was an interferon derivative, it was used at the time I was in the industry, we had H1N1, H5N1, we had a bird flu, we had a swine, a swine flu outbreak. That's not on label, but it could be used for that. And what the company uh, that I worked for was trying to do was to augment the label. So the, the indication was for this particular drug, it was infrigen, okay, a consensus interferon, three times a week subcutaneous dosing for the treatment of hepatitis C. That was on the label. What the company wanted to do was change the dosing because they had theorized, well, in a small study, outcomes are better if we do daily dosing, okay? Yes, it had a great slope of viral decay. You got rid of the virus faster, but it made people sicker, and ultimately the, the trial didn't work out, okay? But there was another drug the company was studying, and they saw, well, this is good for these rare 
immune disorders, but it also reduces fibrosis in the lungs, or what we would call idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. Uh, like a glass-like scarring of the lungs, you build up fibrotic tissue, and it's of unknown origin. And this particular drug, it was a small study that showed, okay, it had promise. But that small study didn't have enough patience or power to take to the FDA and say, look, this is a terrible disease. Give us approval for this. The FDA said, no, we're not going to approve you based on this tiny study. You have to do a bigger study. But in the meantime, the FDA says to the company, you are not allowed to go promote this off-label. Off-label promotion, that's the issue. It applies to the drug manufacturers. You can't have a legion of sales reps go out and tell doctors based on a 12-patient study, Sean. This works for pulmonary fibrosis. It ended up being a lawsuit. The CEO of the company did a couple weeks in federal prison due to off-label mm. promotion because the company generated $90 million in off-label oh, wow. sales. So that CEO, who's the CEO of yet another biotech company, you know, once you prove you can push the envelope and you're willing to take the risk in the industry, you do it. But see, right. you can't have promotion for it. See, we're compounding pharmacists, Sean. We don't promote. The decision to use a drug off-label, a different duration of time or for a different purpose, that comes down to the practitioner. And I get a lot of questions. Is it irresponsible for the doctor to use ivermectin for COVID? Uh, no. Have you seen over 100 studies that show its effectiveness for COVID-19 yeah. and various viral illnesses? No. What would you rather do? You want to wait on the FDA for a drug that no one is going to spend the money on getting a clinical approval for, for this expanded indication, because it's been off patent for a long time. It's a 60-year-old drug. So does that help kind of with the terms? Absolutely. Absolutely. That was great. Thank you for that knowledge. Janet, I'm sure you have some comments about this. Well, I do because um, the the public sees off-label use as a definition of it's scary because that's kind of what we're creating. But from the terminology that we're using, really what it does is it frees up the provider, correct, to use a drug that's been approved or known to use it at their discretion for what we have found in literature or publication or what other providers are using for on a daily basis. And so what comes to mind is if we want to speak about gabapentin or neurotin, um, that has never been used as far as I know for uh, anti-seizure for very long. It's it's in the pain realm, right? That's exactly right. And And what you said about what's in the literature and what practitioners can do, you know, here's the argument that you might want to say, well, if something is used off-label, uh, not necessarily an argument, a distinction. Is it safe or is, un is it unsafe? Is it proven or unproven? And what you said, when there's literature behind the use of a drug, even if it's off-label, and it proves to be safe and effective, because if the drug is already approved and on the market, the FDA has decided, okay, it's safe and effective enough. That's one thing. And number two, if you happen to use the drug unless the dosing is outrageous for a different indication, well, as a medical practitioner, are you backed by what's published in the literature? And that's what is the crucial distinction, because on one hand, you have news outlets or whoever may be motivated to say, well, this is this is unsafe to use it off-label. Off-label does not mean unsafe. Off-label doesn't mean unproven. What you said, Janet, was in the literature. But who would be motivated to make that cry? Well, this is off-label. You better not do it. Well, what if you're threatening market share of much more expensive medications or vaccines? Oh, Okay, now you know why there's a press campaign to say, or some kind of public relations campaign that's nefarious, you, you can't use this off-label. No, you can. And one last point. I, I know I talk a lot. 
I we had love it. this discussion a number of times with practitioners that would call my pharmacy and say, Robert, I, I had a patient ask me for hydroxychloroquine for, for COVID. And I don't want to say no, but man, I'm, I'm afraid. Say, so, okay, here's the data. Here's the website you can go to for a meta-analysis. Here's a number of studies that go back years, effectiveness of hydroxychloroquine for COVID. And even Anthony Fauci himself said that hydroxychloroquine is kind of like your pan-antiviral. And doctor, here's the thing. You're making the best decision for your patient. What's the downside? It's like, what do you mean? Doc, this is a drug that has been on the market for over 60 years. It has been used in the very young and the very old. And in every country that keeps an adverse drug event reporting database, there's very little associated with the drug. And not that there's no risk. I would say, look, if you have an uncontrolled heart uh, arrhythmia, if you have specifically Toshad's DuPont turning of the points, which is severe, you might want to reconsider using hydroxychloroquine. But that doesn't mean no. Because if nothing else is going to benefit that patient and you don't want the hydroxychloroquine to end up with a severe adverse event, you have a very sick patient. You have to analyze whether or not the benefits outweigh the risk. And of course, you and I both saw wide adoption amongst, you know, much more surprising percentage of physicians than the public is aware of to say, this is what's best for my patient, whether it's hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, N-acetylcysteine, vitamin D. Providers are free to do what is best for their patients. It's responsible when what they're using a drug for, even if off-label is published in the literature, and then you and I would consider as pharmacists too. These are not these two medications in particular, ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. Very little downside. I mean, even in, in pregnant women, these drugs were uh, were used because they've been used around the world for a long time. Well, and let's back up a little bit <clears throat> when we discuss in the literature, because sometimes things happen so fast that it's not in the literature yet. But there's a patient history of it, and there's you know, a multitude of prescribers that have had good luck with it, and it hasn't been published yet, but they've been using it, and it's been working. And that's what ends up in the literature. So sometimes these things happen so fast, the literature doesn't even keep up, let alone you know, FDA approval process on indication. So let's realize it's, you know, it's, indiv- it's, it's initially an individual doctor and an individual patient that makes a decision what is best for them and then it can you know then they can tell other people when that works well you're right and i can give you more examples that just make so much sense because this was an issue with a relative in the last week okay relative calls me i'm the pharmacist in another state i'm originally from pennsylvania so relative calls me and says i've I've got a real bad burning sensation uh, when i urinate and it's over the weekend Well, this is somebody that's of an age where I say, you know, telemedicine is a real thing. Why don't you call the doctor? You're going to get a prescription for an antibiotic. You don't have to fill it at my pharmacy. It's going to go uh, to your local pharmacy. And it brought to mind this. It's like, well, do I really need to do that? Or can I wait till I have an appointment on Monday? No. Telemedicine gives you access right now. And here's why. Because you don't want that urinary tract infection to go all the way up to the bladder and cause a kidney infection, which is really severe, uh, that infection, pyelonephritis. So think of an antibiotic like the quinolones, for example, Sean, that are on the market and may not necessarily have had a regional indication for a urinary tract infection. But if you're a physician and you know that the coverage of that fluoroquinolone is broad, maybe you've cultured the urine, maybe not, but you need to make the best decision to prevent your patient from having hospitalization or something more severe, especially based on their age. They're 78 years old. You don't, you don't want that urinary tract infection to get worse. So you make the best clinical decision and say, you know what, despite the fact that this doesn't have an indication 
for a urinary tract infection. I know it works. It's going to work fast, often one dose. This is what I'm going to prescribe. So you see, I wanted to have that conversation just about this example, which you and I have seen thousands of times because the best clinical decision for the patient, a drug safe enough to already be on the market, benefits far outweigh the risk because in this particular case, a urinary tract infection, we don't want that infection to get worse. The antibiotic covered it, single dose, no pyelonephritis, no hospital admission, no uh, increased risk of mortality, all because why? That practitioner was educated and willing to write the drug technically off-label, but they knew it would work. Right, and there are so many examples like that. Um, you know, and we can go back even further with drugs that were pre-FDA. You know, for instance, codeine. Codeine has never been approved by the FDA, never formally approved. It was grandfathered in, but it's never been formally approved because it was around before the FDA was. Does that mean codeine is not effective? Does that mean codeine is not safe? No, it's been used on millions, millions of patients over the last hundred years. Um, so I think that's a great simple example of how just because something isn't FDA approved does not mean it's not safe or effective. Well, that's right. And let's take another example. How was medicine practiced in the 18th century and even the 19th century in the United States before we had the big wave of the AMA and the Rockefeller prescription drug pharma, which, you know, is an acronym for Pharmaceutical Researchers and Manufacturers Association, right? Medicine was practiced with herbs, uh, with vitamins. Now, these things never got FDA approval, but how many herbs are you aware of uh, that are still recommended today? Let's just talk about, I mean, gosh, I sell a lot of vitamins, Sean. I know that you do too. And, and during COVID, not even a vitamin, but people asking me a lot about oregano oil, about right. the, you know, yeah, exactly. The, the immune boosting power yeah. and candida fungus killing of oregano oil. Why? Because it has been used for hundreds of years. Is it indicated for candida? No, but people buy supplements and herbs in the United States to the tune of it's probably by now hundred billion dollar a year industry. When I, when I had a slide about it and, and actually in a presentation and, and was going to put this in my book, uh, at the time, 2003, it was a $73 billion industry, vitamins and herbal supplements. So again, you know, that I think a great tragedy for, tragedy for the public is to overlook the fact that there are many things that are very useful that can be prescription or non-prescription. And if the perception to the public is that, well, if it's not FDA approved, if it's off-label, like that's a bad term, well, may maybe I shouldn't use it. That doesn't mean be reckless. That doesn't mean buy low-quality supplements. That doesn't mean a provider is going to be reckless or irresponsible and, and use a particular drug where they're not sure if the benefits outweigh the risk or they're not sure at all there's any efficacy data based on what's, what's in the literature, uh, like you said, Janet. But uh, I think that's something we can do for the audience is just say, look, just you know, take with a grain of salt sometimes that term and who's telling you, well, this is off label. It's just bad. And, and we're going to, to ban it. Do you know it's a constitutional provision in the United States Constitution? It's also in my Nevada Constitution to make sure that medications are available to the public. So to restrict those medications, which my governor did at the time, you know, during COVID, to restrict access to medication. Okay, that's something that should be challenged from a constitutional perspective. And I wonder if we're going to see challenges like that. Hey, you you banned this during this particular time and people, people were ill. I wonder if we're going to see that going forward. I'm not sure yet, but that's the other end of the spectrum of this off-label. It's dangerous. You know, I right. don't think so. 
Well, and the other coin, the other flip coin of this is the public is not unable to educate themselves. I mean, they can go online and research this just as much as we can. And so what you created in the past few years in states like ours, which we were under the same issue, is that people bought it online and they bought it from wherever they could get hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin. So my my fear was, and some of it came from countries that, you know, I, I couldn't read the label, right? So now we've created situations where people are like, you know, I'm going to take care of myself and I'm going to find what I need or my family needs. Whether you approve it or not, I'm going to find it this way. And rather than that, I would have preferred them to be able to go and sit down with their physician and have a conversation. Do I need this? What is your thoughts on this? And make a decision together rather than some bureaucrat telling them you can't have someone and then they go down the black market. And I'm not saying all the things that they got were, but I mean, it it would have been better if they had a prescription filled if they agreed to do that with the client. And then you pulled it from a shelf that you could guarantee, hey, this is what it is. That's exactly right. Uh, Sean, you have a comment on that too? I'm sure you... No, no, I'm going to let you go on that. Well, you know, it's just, just a kind of uh, open and old sore because I, I never said no to a prescription. I, I just thought it was outrageous for the Nevada governor to ban hydroxychloroquine. And then there were multiple articles, even in our very controlled press, about the former governor, Steve Sisolak, hoarding hydroxychloroquine in the Nevada prison system pharmacies, just in case he and some friends needed it, okay? So that's the type of, you know, really terrible behavior uh, that that went on. And again, you know, for, for what? For a drug that has been on the market for a long time with little downside that had proven clinical literature. And it's like, well, we, we banned it because it's off-label. Wait a minute. When has any board of pharmacy ever gotten in the way of what a medical practitioner could do? Right. The board... A pharmacy was involved. Yes. So the Board of Pharmacy and the governor of Nevada were sued for practicing medicine because the denial of therapy, which Correct. this will bring me to what we might see with the chain drugstores. I mean, honestly, I, I hate to say it, but, you know, these class action lawsuits that you've seen on TV for years for multiple things, Sean, I mean, uh, gosh, all the way back to the Regilin lawsuit when I worked for Walgreens and thereafter Park Davis. Uh, I wonder if there are going to be class action lawsuits against bureaucrats like governors because, hey, you you banned this drug. You didn't have the authority with the state constitution or the federal constitution to do so. You violated constitutional rights for people to have access to care. And, and you know, you practiced medicine because the denial of therapy, just like what the chain drugstores did. Oh, we're not we're not going to fill that prescription. We don't fill that prescription uh, for covid. We're not going to do that. That's a judgment. That is a pharmacist not exercising good judgment. That's a pharmacist who may have denied it because of a corporate policy at a chain drugstore to say, nope, we have to push uh, the vaccines. We have to push uh, Paxlovid, right? And that definitely happened, I know, in my state with the pharmacies that have little clinics in them. Walgreens and CVS do. Oh, no, you brought in a prescription for hydroxychloroquine. Is this for COVID? No, no, no. You You don't get that. You have to go see the PA the or, or the nurse practitioner in the little clinic next door, they'll give you a prescription for Paxlovid instead. And Paxlovid's covered by your insurance. That's that's a ridiculous practice of medicine bypassing what that patient's initial provider wanted to do and thought was best for them. Again, denying therapy, practice of medicine, bad idea. 
and pushing another therapy, Paxlovid. And if I remember right, help me out with this, Robert. I hope I'm not speaking out of term, but Paxlovid was the first drug that the FDA ever approved like nationwide where pharmacists could prescribe it. Is that correct? It is. And what was it? Will you, will you tell me, yeah. Will you tell me the details of that? Which the FDA has no business telling other states what can be prescribed, but go ahead. So that allowed pharmacists in some states, I don't know how many it was, Sean, it might've been 15 states for a pharmacist at the point of sale. Someone drops off a hydroxychloric prescription and the pharmacist in that state says, no, but I'm allowed to prescribe for you Paxlovid. So did that pharmacist make the same diagnosis, perform the same exam and consult than the original practitioner? No, because that pharmacist is not the practitioner. And I mean, I love my job, right? And I know that I'm a good treatment consultant. You and I both, Sean, if doctors have questions about hormone therapy, about vitamins, they pick up the phone and they, they call us. Right. And we advise, this is what I would recommend. No, don't give this woman extra estrogen, extra give a little bit less. Uh, you know, hey, this might be the thing that's causing uh, the migraines in the person. We can adjust this dose. You know, we, we do that as treatment yeah. consultants. But to actually bypass, deny therapy that a medical practitioner decided was best, I don't think that's necessarily a good place for the pharmacist. And why did they do that? It was only at the corporate drugstores. It was only at the chains. And why did it benefit them? Because, Sean, I mean, hydroxychloroquine at the time during COVID, it was more expensive than it is now. But Paxlovid made the chain drugstores a couple hundred bucks. And remember what we talked about on the last episode. Um, You were aware of some, but not all. CVS owns the largest PBM, the Prescription Benefit Manager, Caremark. That's in your face because it's called the CVS Caremark Company. Walgreens, through uh, positioning of board seats, namely a guy named Stefano Pessina, well, Walgreens has de facto ownership or at least uh, control in terms of a board seat on Express Scripts and uh, OptumRx, uh, United, I think, bought them. And then Walmart owns Humana. Most people know that. Those are your top four PBMs, your top four prescription benefit insurance plans. And you could see where they said, well, we don't want to collect this 20 bucks, 25 bucks for hydroxychloroquine. We we want that $235 reimbursement for the packs. But hey, pharmacists, you work for us and you deny that therapy and you switch it. We don't care what the doctor said. You do it. Now, who's going to be liable for that, Sean? Who do you think? Is it the pharmacist? Is it the corporation or both? I think both. I think both of them should be liable. And, you know, because I don't think just taking orders works, um, you know, as the pharmacists were doing. I think eventually pharmacists have to stand up or healthcare professionals in general and say, no, we're not going to do that. That's not what's in the best interest of the patient. And what's interesting about that, what you say, Robert, is, you know, they were basically essentially when those uh, chain stores own those PBMs, um, they are essentially getting paid twice with and you know more about this than I do, with basically a kickback from the drug company, correct? That's right, because it's called a rebate. Right. You know, how the, how the world usually works with the PBMs, okay? So let's go back to the hepatitis C days. And uh, now hepatitis C is treated very successfully with oral therapy. But at the time, I was uh, involved in managing clinical trials for that other interferon. There were only two drugs on the market that were interferons. Roche had one, Pegasus, and Shering had one called Pegintron. They controlled this $2 billion market in the U.S. Now, it's two very similar drugs. So if you're the salesperson for sharing, you're the account manager, you go to one of the big PBMs like Caremark and say, look, we know we have a competitor out there, uh, Mr. Caremark. So tell you what, if you guide your formulary, if you guide the usage so that not all, but let's say 75 percent 
of the prescriptions you fill for hepatitis C or for our drug, if it's for Peg Intron, tell you what, we'll give you a rebate. We'll give you, you have to hit that threshold now. If you if you do less than 75% our drug, no rebate. But if you qualify for the rebate, Sean, you know, these rebates, $2 million, $10 million, right. $15 million. And what's interesting about the accounting, because PBMs go to employers and say, well, we're not really gouging you, Mr. Employer, on the drug price. Yeah, we're charging you $150, $180 a month to offer a drug plan. But look at our balance sheet. It's not really that profitable. Okay, because the rebates are not maneuvered by their accountants. Right. <laughs> they go to executive compensation. I mean, wow. if you talk about an industry that needs to be exposed, uh, torn uh, apart, and redone, yeah. it's the yeah. PBM industry. It, it would, Robert, it would be illegal in any other industry. It, it, unreal that that stuff happens. That's that's like mob. That's what that, that's that's what the mafia and the mob does. I mean, seriously. Um, and just just to clarify, there were probably no rebates on ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, correct? These drugs are dirt cheap. They're generic. They're pennies. Oh. No rebates. Absolutely not. Right. No rebates at all. Right. So basically, to get back on topic about FDA indication and FDA approval, just because something is FDA. Not FDA approved, not FDA indicated, doesn't mean that it's not safe, does not mean it's not effective, and does not mean that we don't use it regularly, correct? That's right. You know, there's so many examples like we, we talked about, and, you know, it's like, well, why didn't that company go get an additional approval? See, we call that expanding the label. You submit a clinical trial and all the requirements to get a drug approved for one thing, one indication. Then after you've done that, well, do, do you need to pay money for another FDA approval, a bigger clinical trial, and then there's also filing fees with the FDA for an abbreviated new drug application to say, well, we have this one indication, now we're going for two. It's an economic analysis. because it, what And what goes into that analysis? Well, what's the competitive landscape? Okay, we, we got the drug approved for one thing, and we're the only one in the game. But this other second indication that we want, well, you know what? There are five other drugs that compete. Two of them are about to go off patent, and our own drug is going to go off patent relatively soon. So why spend the money? I mean, it might cost $5 million. It might cost $50 million to get that additional uh, approval, to expand that label. But, you know, so there's two reasons why uh, there was a lot of drugs that are used off-label, but never you know, because they never got the approval. And it's not because they don't work for that other thing, that alternative indication. It's because it just doesn't economically make sense for the manufacturer from a patent standpoint, not only for their drug, but for the other drugs that might already be in that market space for that additional, that secondary indication. Does that right. make sense to you? Absolutely, absolutely does. You know, one thing I think about when I talk about FDA approval and drugs used off uh, label, is one of the examples I usually give is Lasix. You know, most people and most prescribers know what Lasix is, um, generic furosemide. And generic furosemide um, is only indicated for hypertension, but that's not what we use it for. You know, we use it for CHF. Why? Because we've used it for many, many years and it works. Mm -hmm. um, but there's no way when we found out how well it worked, and it's just it's just basically physiology and pharmacology of why it works for CHF. Um, but there's no way that drug company is going to go back and get an indication for CHF once furosemide is generic. Right. And what if the reason the drug company doesn't go and get that indication is not necessarily because the drug is about to go generic? Let's just say it's not. Let's just say that it's published in the medical literature 
already that okay, well, the, the drug is approved uh, for hypertension, but hey, let's it's it really works for CHF, and there's lots of prescribing for CHF, and there's going to be no additional prescribing for CHF or edema of the drug just because you go do a clinical trial. You're not going to go spend five to fifty million dollars just because. Whoa, this would this would be good. You're already getting those prescriptions. That's another scenario right. that explains why this it is not uncommon that drugs are often used off-label. Again, why do we prescribe furosemide for CHF? Because it works. Exactly. I mean, that, 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 that's, so if things work, that's usually why it's being prescribed over and over and over again, which is, you know, a good exa- the good examples are hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin. Um, you know, no matter what you want to read in the literature, usually if something is prescribed over and over and over again, it usually means that it worked. That's right. And like your wife said too, What's also in the literature? What's in the literature? Yeah. You don't have doctors being cowboys. And, and I'm not saying that there's not a place for that. I mean, I, I live in the West. I'm in the Southwest. You're in the Northwest. Right? <laughs> yeah, so it's right. a little bit different mentality. When you've got cowboys that say, you know what? This is off-label. Here's a disease state that's a high risk for the patient. And you know what? This is the physiologic problem I'm going to prescribe. You know, I gave you the antibiotic example, right? I, this is a patient at high risk for pyelonephritis, and I'm going to get rid of this urinary tract infection right now. I don't care that that quinolone is not indicated for this. And, and some of them did go and expand their uh, their label for these indications. But, you know, doctors are allowed to be uh, thinkers. And I remember this uh, two-word Latin phrase uh, when I was in pharmacy school, uh, secundum artem. And if I recall the translation of that, uh, meaning it's, it's part of the art or of the art of medicine. It's not just the expensive box checker algorithm, which is which is a lot of what I say today sometimes to the right. general practitioners who don't think, who don't even lay their hands on patients anymore or even look at them. They sit at the keyboard and follow the corporate approved because you have, we have a lot here in the Southwest, a lot of independent doctors uh, had to sell their practice and it's corporatized medicine now. Okay. Yep. And it's only corporate approved treatment programs. Ask the patient a question in what is an average, you know, the average primary care visit now is 7.6 minutes. So it's typically one problem, maximum two drugs, and they click, you know, this is, okay, this is the symptom, this is the symptom, this is the symptom. It spits out the ICD-10 code. Okay, our system diagnosed you with this. Here's the approved treatments. Okay, I agree. Click, click, these drugs. Hey, what pharmacy do you want these to go to? What's the address? Click, okay, it's already there. See, I got to go to the next person. I mean, so much for a deep dive clinical care. Not to say that it's always necessary, but I can tell you that in our type of pharmacy practice, it's a completely different practitioner mindset, right? You have 30-minute visits. You have a real physical exam that occurs because you have functional medicine-minded practitioners that are not the expensive box checkers. And it's one of these corporate medicine practitioners that gave me the term. He said, Robert, I I hate my job. I can only do what the company says. I'm nothing but an expensive box checker. Help me get out of this. And I did. He just said, "I, I can't take any of my patients. They belong to the corporation. I'd have to open a new business all on my own and advertise and get patients. And gosh, the insurance reimbursements are so low. That's why it's a 7.6 minute office visit. What do I do? I said, if you want to do it, you got to do functional medicine. You have to build your practice slowly. And I'm sorry, the road might not be paved with gold, but if you're already having a conscience about how you're practicing and you want to change, you'll find 
the patients. And I have a number of fans and successful practices. It took them a while, just like you do. I'm sure in yep. your state too. We have yep. the same model that occurs. And those practitioners love their lives and their patients love the Absolutely. I mean, you are speaking to the choir and it is so reassuring to see people get out of the system and um, not only not only be liberated in a new system free of insurance, but um, thrive. And I will tell you, I think it's hard as a healthcare professional, whether it be a doctor, um, whether it be a pharmacist, to, to practice in the traditional system and have much ethics. Seriously, I, I say that. Um, there is so much unethical stuff going on because, again, people are box checkers and they're not actually, you know, you said doctors are thinkers and, and they are, although unfortunately the system doesn't want them to be. You know, no. so they're, they 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 want them to be that you know follow the guidelines, follow the standard of care. Don't ask questions, and like my wife always says, standard of care does not equal quality care. It just means what's common out there in the field. It takes guts. I said before the Cowboys. It takes guts to be a medical practitioner and take all the arrows from the AMA, local organizations. What yep. what you're doing is that alternative stuff. We also call it quackery or voodoo. And the same for you and I in pharmacy. And, and I'll tell you another thing. Uh, for the practitioner, they really stick it out there and they find their fans and it's great. But I was on a show, not yet uploaded, but do you recognize the name Naomi Wolf? Oh, yes. Yes. Okay. So I was recorded on a show with her and we just talked in general about how in the world I get into pharmacy? And she had no idea that I spent time on the dark side in the drug industry, <laughs> yeah. right? And, and, and what I told her was I, I foresee a change in, in medicine that is being driven by patients who are going to reject the box checker model, that are going to change their uh, lifestyle uh, and find the practitioners that are open-minded and say, you know what, I'm, I'm following this direction because I went into the art of medicine and, and you and I both work with a number of them. But Naomi asked me, she said, but Robert, why are you advocating for a lower prescription drug use healthcare model? And I said, well, Naomi, my business is going to do fine because I'm nimble enough. What Of all the pharmacies in the country, Sean, there are 4,000 compounders like you and me. It's mm -hmm. not many. So there's always going to be a market because you and I both know you can do a lot with testosterone in men and women. I used to show slides to doctors. Here's three slides. Here's 16 different symptoms associated with low testosterone. Yep. It doesn't matter the gender. So look at all these different ways. I could prescribe at least six drugs, or we could just look at replenishing youthful testosterone level. Yep. So I said to her, I said, you know, that yeah, Suzanne Summers wrote her books. There's a public interest in all this. And I'm okay with it. I do a lot with nutritional uh, supplements. I know you sell a lot of vitamins. I sell a lot of vitamins. And I said, Naomi, if it ever got to the point where there were no prescription drugs needed, not even the compounded stuff. Okay, I know that I'd have to be nimble enough to go find a new business. And I joked with her, I said, I'd go from pharmacy to farming, Naomi. I'd be growing organic vegetables and right. pasture-raised hens yeah. and eggs. If I had to find another business, it's okay, but I don't foresee that in my lifetime. There's such a demand for what we do, and it's mostly the knowledge specification. And you know, there is some courage to say to our governors, you know what? You're not going to limit what I dispense to my patients. You're not going to limit the practitioners by refusing access to certain medication. That's unconstitutional. And yeah, there might be a little bit of danger there or flack there, but you know, I'm in it for patient care and to support my practitioners that are like-minded. I know you are too. Absolutely. I mean, you, you, you hit the nail on the head. And one thing is, is like, you know, you and I, 
have some courage to get out of the regular system. And maybe we do, we are a little different than the average pharmacist, but I agree with you. There will always be room for somebody that can educate and empower patients. And that's essentially what you and I do. And that's my goal is to educate and empower patients. And if they happen to get hormone placement or they happen to buy vitamins and supplements from me, great. But there's also many other avenues. I talk, we talk about diet, we talk about sleep, we talk about exercise. And there is, you know, a market for that. Now, you know, maybe there won't be in 50 years a market for a pharmacist just dispensing medications. Um, and honestly, if I was a pharmacist just dispensing medications for chronic disease, I wouldn't be a pharmacist. I'd go do something different. And that's why I'm doing what we do. Yeah, it's exactly right, Sean, because it took me all of two weeks graduating from pharmacy school, celebrating that I got a job, I got through college, you know, and thinking, wow, I, I, I'm successful. I got, Wait a minute. All I'm doing is counting by fives and pushing pills out the door. Or if I was in a hospital at that time, you know, I graduated in 95, not, not a lot of clinical work for pharmacists, and I'm working in a dungeon. I didn't like this. I did like the uh, lifestyle that the drug reps worked, right? So I laughed, also told Naomi, said, well, I, I liked that lifestyle because it was the 5T work week. She said, what? I said, well, before time of day GPS stamp with your iPads, you worked Tuesday through Thursday, 10 to 2, you worked sales. And it was an interesting life, but I, I, it was the dark side. So I went to clinical trials management, which I thought was a more pure pursuit for the drug industry. And I'm not saying everything the drug industry does is nefarious and solely profit motivated. And it's just, but there's so much of it that yeah. it's hard to distinguish it, especially when you look at the fact that pharmaceutical industry advertising is still 60% at least of primetime television advertising. Uh, it's probably, it ranks, I think, the, in terms of the uh, lobbying expense. I think it changes from time to time to be one, two, or three, but it's always in the top three of lobbying Congress, which begins with C-O-N for a reason, just a side note. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, and, and to just create this perception of, of medicine, which is not necessarily health forward first for the patient. And I think the movement that you and I are a part of, which, which is patient-driven and brave practitioner-driven, I think is going to have longevity. I think we do have at least 50 years of helping people uh, use repurposed drugs. There's going to be some drug utilization still. You know, they have value. We're not going to go to zero prescriptions. Uh, but to repurpose some of these old cheap drugs and to integrate, I like the integrative model, uh, to integrate the nutritionals, diet and lifestyle management to get people healthier. There's always going to be a market for that, in my opinion. I, I agree. And, and one of the things is I think that you have to look at with most of the drugs that are advertised. I mean, Jan, I'll be watching TV and we'll see a drug come up and it's like, you know, a, a, new, a new drug for some kind of GI thing like IBS. And, and IBS, Robert, I think is the biggest BS diagnosis. Um, I mean, IBS, if you eat wrong stuff, anybody can get IBS. So why do we need a $2,000 a month biotech drug to prevent IBS? Why don't we just educate people on how diet can affect IBS, right? Well, that's exactly right. And, you know, people think I'm, I'm allergic to all these foods. I can't eat anything. It might not necessarily be the food that you're eating, but what is sprayed on it. Yeah. And we just say, hey, can you try to get away from GMO, um, glyphosate, spray glyphosate sprayed foods that's wrecking uh the gut uh because i think there's a number of reasons why our, our sensitivities to different foods have grown but if you manage that and heal the guts i mean you're familiar with the 
I don't know if it's four or five R protocol, right? Uh, reduce the inflammatory stuff, remove the bad bacteria, replace with the good, and then regenerate or heal the gut. And, and you're right. I'm not saying people don't have symptoms of IBS, but like I've said before, IBS is not a Gosh, what's the drug, Sean? I don't even know what the drugs are for it anymore. For IBS. I, I don't either. I don't keep up with it because I don't think it's a. I don't think it's a good diagnosis. I think most IBS can be fixed with, um, with diet modification. Um, good okay. example. This weekend, I talked to a guy, and his son had um, ulcerative colitis, um, and I and I still think ulcerative colitis can be. Um, you know, controlled by diet. I don't think you need fancy drugs. And he was, mm -hmm. I was doing a presentation on healthcare in Canada, actually, and healthcare in Canada versus United States, which honestly, after doing some research, I realized that if you don't get out of the system, like, like you and I are out of the system and our patients are, um, so socialized medicine is alive and well in the United States. I mean, if you're mm -hmm. in the traditional system, it's socialized medicine. Um, anyway, his son has ulcerative colitis. And I said, well, has he ever tried, you know, changing his diet? And he said, no. Uh, oh, he says he's tried everything. I said, well, has he ever tried the carnivore diet? I said, you know, carnivore diet had, can fix a lot of GI problems. And he says, well, he can't do that because um, he's a vegetarian. And I'm like, oh. well, I mean, there you go. I mean, bingo. I mean, I don't think that ulcerative colitis is good if you have a bunch of fiber in your gut. Or, you know, you know, I mean, seriously. Or the small seeds, right? And you got to realize exactly too. Exactly right. <laughs> um, I had a discussion with a vegan recently because I have some physicians who are now encountering their local physicians, and they'll encounter the long COVID uh, or vax injured, and they they know what I do, like you and I do, and they'll say, Robert, I, I really do need your consultative help on this. Here's the labs. What what are the things that you recommend? And I had to tell this one practitioner, I'm happy to help you with cases, but I can't help a vegan. They have so many nutritional deficiencies, right. essential fatty acids, and you know they have a high intake of omega sixes, which are pro-inflammatory. Even the olive oil, you know, is high on omega six, and then they heat it, they oxidize it. So, but they have so many deficiencies, I can't, I can't deal with it. Uh, you know, you can't fix them. You mentioned the carnivore diet because, again, let's say the vegans. And vegans, it's a misconception. Here's the thing. I grew up on a farm in Pennsylvania raising cows. Cows are part of the ecosystem. They're like, I don't want to kill animals. Well, if you're eating any of the cereal grains or cereal grasses, because that's a big part of a vegan diet, those things are sprayed relentlessly. And even if it's not glyphosate, they're sprayed with rutin or something. It's technically organic. It's really irritating to the bowel. You have a high lectin intake, which might not necessarily be a problem. But do you know that because of no matter what they spray, organic or not, the biomass of organisms that you kill to grow your vegan food, I guess you just, you don't like insects. You, like, you love the cows, but like you don't that. You let the and insects die, right? Or mice, or mice and rodents. And the, and, and, and the worms. Yeah, yeah. And, I will, and I will tell you, I live in farm country and I have been invited to many, many pigeon shoots because uh, pigeons are um, destroying a farmer's crop. And so then it's legal to shoot them. And we slayed a hundred pigeons in an hour probably. And, and that's the way it is because you have to protect your crop. So don't think that eating vegetarian or eating vegan is actually saving animals because it's not. Well, you know, uh, people have asked me this, well, I don't understand, Robert. Listen, if you look at protein sources, the two highest protein sources on the U.S. Agricultural Nutrient Density Index, you go look it up, it's grass-fed bison, grass-fed beef. And yeah. that food is actually high on omega-3s. And cows are part of the ecosystem. And I've had vegans before. And, and Sean, honestly, even my own wife, she was vegan when I met her. 
right? And and I'm like, well, why are you vegan? And she was getting the low iron, low B12, and she's a uh, blood type yep. O, right? She's a blood type O. So the blood types O, you, you know they need to eat meat. And she said, well, there's just so much waste in commercial agriculture. It just drives me crazy, those poor animals. I said, you know, I, I respect that and I get it. They're part of the ecosystem, the animals, so are we. So here's the thing. We'll buy from farms that raise the cows on grass, raise them out in the pasture. They live a great life. They have one bad day. But, (laughs) you know, what? and she just rash. I said, there's the only thing you can do is just make sure that you don't waste yourself and don't buy from sources that carelessly waste or carelessly treat the the animals. We, We were buying until all this poor lady in a city 45 minutes outside of Las Vegas. She had a bunch of hens and we were buying eggs from her and then. A feral cat got in the pen, Sean. Oh. So the chicks haven't started laying eggs then. But it's like I, I support that, and I encourage everybody who yeah. can. And yeah. you're in a you're in an area of the country where you can find local farmers. We you do it. Buy a, yeah, that's yep. it. It's exactly what you do. You support the local farmers and you support the ecosystem. Yeah, we go through uh, actually because I've got two big boys, 23 and 21, and um, we go through a full beef every four months. And I'm proud to say that um, um, they they don't live with us, but they do raid our freezer, and we love it. <laughs> oh man! And and there is no better way. Speaking of vegan vegetarians, uh, uh, many times, and I will I'm with you when I get a practitioner and they say, "Well, look at this person's labs, and and they have low iron." I mean, almost all of them have low iron, and I'll say they need to start eating meat. And there is no better way. There is no better way to raise your iron than red meat. There, none. There is no supplement that is better um, than, to raise your iron than you know the heme-based iron that you get from red meat. I mean, that's why it's red. It's got iron in it. Well, here's another interesting thing, Sean, uh, that I discovered because I, I, was, I was driven to do this research. We talked about this in a, the previous episode, right? COVID research and veganism uh, a little bit. And I told you I have a, a mentor who's a physician. He's also a three-star admiral in the Navy. And he loaded to me all kinds of articles to research. And one of them had to do with why vegans during COVID did so poorly. So during COVID, who did poorly? Morbidly obese, over 65, diabetic indoor dwellers. They did very poorly. But another subpopulation that did poorly was vegans. Why? Because most of the niacin that's available in our diet today it's a particular niacin in our cereal grasses or breads that's not very absorbable because of the substrate. You know, they switch to uh, a molasses-based um, uh, yeast uh, to, to raise the niacin level. And also, there are people who don't eat the beef. What is our number one source of dietary niacin? And that would be that grass-raised beef or grass-raised bison. If you don't have enough niacin, you don't activate an enzyme called NRF2. Okay, what does NRF2 do? I liken this analogy to people. If you have a bunch of very inflammatory cytokines, cellular chemicals, let's picture them like they're they're penned up bulls in a fence, right? They want to get out and cause inflammation and, and havoc everywhere in the body. You don't want that to happen. And that's a lot of what we saw with COVID, right? Just terrible inflammation everywhere. NRF2 is the little enzyme that holds that gate closed. And you have to activate NRF2 with good dietary niacin. Without NRF2, the gates open, inflammation everywhere, which is why, in this particular case, vegans did very poorly, unless 
there were these weird vegans that were also smokers. They had something occupying their nicotinic receptors, that niacinamide receptor, because they smoked. It was really odd. They didn't wow. they, they didn't have as high a hospitalization rate as the vegans who were non-smokers. Isn't that weird? That is. That is. Well, I mean, I think, you know, here's the thing, and when you want to think rationally about diets, you know, when when beef you know, red meat had a bad rap for so long. Hopefully we're getting rid of that, but we still see it. We still see it in traditional medicine. Many doctors, cardiologists will tell their patients don't eat red meat. But I just look at it like this. How long have we been eating red meat as as humans? Okay, thousands of years. And, you know, cows are pretty good about eating vegetables, especially grass that we mm -hmm. can't even eat and digest. They're pretty good about eating grass and assimilating those nutrients into their bodies. And then we eat their, and then we eat their meat. I mean, it, it works perfect. It's been working for thousands of years. Well, that's right. And a cow's digestive system, the, the four-chamber stomach, it's very different from ours. They have to chew all day. Uh, and some people say to me, so, well, Robert, I eat the gorilla diet. I only eat what gorillas eat. And they're a primate like we are. And they're very strong. Said, yes, but their digestive system is set up very differently from it, it ours. You know, and, we, by we the way, and by the way, a gorilla eats 40 pounds of bamboo a day. So do you really eat like a gorilla? That's why their heads are so big. Because they chew all day and their stomachs are so big. They have a 50-foot digestive tract. Ours is, is 30 feet, okay, yeah. as humans. And they have a very high-acid colon, right? Because they, they're still breaking down the fiber, but they have to eat all day. Could you imagine if you and I had to eat that much, just equivalent? I mean, yes, okay, a silverback might weigh 400 pounds, and, and we weigh 200 pounds. So let's say, oh, you don't have to eat as much as a gorilla. You're right. We only have to eat 20 pounds of food a day. Exactly. Right. Man, I can't eat that. No, no way. I don't have enough time to chew. You're right. Or you can eat three pounds of red meat a day. Take your pick. That's right. And, you know, I'm not saying that you know, we do need to alkalize and the vegetables have their important nutrients. But you mentioned the carnivore diet, and I'm, I'm glad that you did because this is something that is new, I think, in the in the patient mindset. Like, wait, wait a minute, that's that's actually healthy. And I have a couple guys that come in and they're, they're, they're a few years older than me. So they're mid-50s or 60 years old, fit, looking great, lost weight around their abdomen. And both of these guys, they're friends, and they go to the same practitioner. I said, hey, wait, a minute. okay, what are you doing, Doug? And he says, ah, I went on. The only things I'm eating are pasture-raised eggs and grass-fed beef. I don't eat anything else. I said, are you kidding me? I said, you look amazing. He says, I feel great. My labs are awesome. Blood pressure is fine. Cholesterol is fine. Yes, his LDL is a little bit higher, but you and I both know the LDL guidelines for cholesterol drugs is used to drive the use of cholesterol drugs. It's oxidized LDL because it's inflamed and it's yeah. under you're under oxidative stress. That's the problem. But these guys look great, feel great. They said their cognition is awesome. They bulked up on muscle, nutrient-dense diet. Yeah. And what's their HDL and triglyceride? That's the most important part. Exactly. You know. Awesome. Well, uh, Robert, we got to wrap this podcast up. As we do, um, I want to I wanna just let you tell our listeners and viewers, what do you have a passion for? I mean, I think you made it obvious over the last hour, but tell us what your passion is. You know, my passion right now, I mean, maybe the answer's changed a little bit since we first talked is I want to be part of what the new medicine is going to be. And it requires open-mindedness of pharmacists and practitioners. And it also requires uh, some pedagogy. We have to teach. You and I both teach practitioners and yep. patients, you know, what are some of the best options for them to pursue? And that means anything from using drugs that are repurposed off-label, they're going to potentially save your life, to, you know, looking seriously at how impactful diet is and appropriate nutritional supplementation and how much 
hormones can do, which is you know, it's good for our business, but gosh, you know, we can really reduce drug utilization. That's my passion right now is to teach this, to be at the forefront of it and just be part of a team to help make people healthy and well. I love it. So Robert, tell us, how do people get a hold of you at your pharmacy if they have any questions? Well, it's Partel Pharmacy. I'm in Las Vegas, licensed in almost all 50 states, and it's P-A-R-T-E-L-L pharmacy.com. You can send a question to me by just clicking the contact us. It'll, it'll just put it at an info at Partel Pharmacy. You can call the main phone number, and I might not answer the phone, but I can always uh, get back to people at 702-791-3800. I love it, Robert. So you definitely helped us realize our goal today, which is to educate and empower individuals to take charge of their own health. So Robert, thank you for your knowledge and wisdom today. I really appreciate it. All right. Thanks again, Sean, for having me on. All right. Listeners and viewers, thank you for tuning in to Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. Tune in Wednesday, 8 a.m. to 9 a.m. for our midweek podcast uh, scheduled. And we will be talking about the FDA, the Pfizer documents that the FDA was trying to to not let release. We're going to be talking about those documents. We have a person on that's an expert in the subject. So tune in 8 a.m. to 9 a.m. Wednesday, Pacific Standard Time. Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. Thank you. Thank you.